times, right? Well, good morning once again. It's good to see some visitors out here, some who I have met before, perhaps I have not. Please give me the opportunity to meet you if I have not met you, and just to greet you again if I already have. Um, We've been on a a series, a detour from the Gospel of John, and we are making our turn back there, but not just yet. So we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy this morning, we're going to be looking at 2 Timothy this morning, and then we're going to be going to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. The agony of apostasy, the agony of apostasy. So go to 1 Timothy, chapter 4, briefly. And just stay right there. <clears throat> and then we'll go right to 2 Timothy, where you can probably guess where that is. So we've looked at and we've studied several texts that hopefully help us understand the whys of the circumstances we find ourselves in as a nation. Um, we looked at Genesis chapter 3 in the garden where Adam fell, Adam's focus shifted from God to himself and to Satan. And Ezekiel chapter 22, we looked at, we studied the people in Jerusalem, leaders included, turning from God to idols. And then Psalm 106, describing three periods of history, Israel turning from God to idols. And then, of course, we looked at Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 32, describing depravity, unbelief, and the consequences of that persistence in an individual and in a society. And I quoted Ernie Reisinger, and I'll quote him again as he says, in this passage, in Romans 1, 18-32, we find mass apostasy as people turn from the worship of the invisible, true, and living God and embrace grotesque idolatry. No other scripture addresses our present society more poignantly. In a solemn act of judgment, God abandons the people described in Romans chapter 1. Idolatry, refusing to acknowledge God, and rampant sexual perversions, trickle down in morality and a breakdown of society. God gives a people over to their sin, to their sinful ways, as it were, if he was saying, you want it, You've got it. So along with the ways that we see in the world that are obvious to us, we also see apostasy within the local church. We see this as individuals. We see this in congregations, denominations. The examples are legion, no pun intended, as we consider perversions, wokeness, false teaching, low views of doctrine, and high views of entertainment and experiences. It is all a perfect storm for apostasy. As I was, as I drive to the gym from my house, I pass two churches, or they used to be churches, that are very obvious from the outside of what they are now and what they used to be. One church in particular has two lesbian pastors, not married to each other, 
it used to be a Baptist or a congregational church way back when. That's just one of two that I pass. And as I was leaving the gym the other day, see, these are obvious to see. Some things are obvious. As I was leaving the gym, I looked over at this restaurant and I was looking at the outside seating. There were three individuals there. And I said, looked at one and I said, what a pig. Because it actually was a pig that the two individuals had out there, a large pig, and he was waiting with them to get their food. So I asked if I could take a picture. They said yes. And so it was obvious that that was a pig. It was obvious. As you would drive by, you would say, that just does not seem right. That seems uh, abnormal. That's not a human that's preparing to eat there. They actually had really good reviews. I was curious. So, sushi too. So we'll see. I'll, I'll, I'll let you know. But I don't want to digress into that. But sometimes apostasy is not as obvious. It's not as blatant and out in the open as it could be. As we consider First Timothy chapter 4. Let me pray once again. Father, I look to you again. Oh God, I look to the Holy Spirit to give me power and strength and wisdom. I'm a weak vessel. Uh, they need to hear from you, O oh God. The people need to hear from your word. I pray you would use this in a mighty way in the hearts of men and women and boys and girls here this day for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So when we consider what a society would look like, we ask or we look to what will a church look like at times. Since Romans 1 describes us as a nation, what does the church look like within our nation, broadly speaking? Or what should we expect to see with some professing Christians? Well, apostasy does tie into what is called last days, last things, and we will look at that, or last times. But 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes, But the Spirit, the, the Holy Spirit of God, explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. The Spirit explicitly says to Paul that in later times some will fall away. They will pay attention to deceitful spirits, doctrines of, of demons. The demons are, of course, agents of the devil. And so we will see that. And go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And then we'll go to 2 Timothy chapter 4 right after that. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. Paul, again, he says, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, 
treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. And when Paul gives that warning there, he is talking about those within the, under the umbrella of what is called, or what the world would call Christianity. Avoid such men as, as those. And in, in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, in verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. So then again, we see a downgrade. They will turn their ears away from the truth and then they will turn further aside to myths. Wanting teachers in accordance of their own desires. Wanting teachers that will uh, pat them on the back and feed their flesh rather than feed their souls. Now, when we consider this, we saw a couple of texts that said last times or last days. And we hear people say, uh, see, you know it, you know it, I know it. We're in the last days. We've got to be the last days. Or they're asked a question, are we in the last days? Do you think we are? Well, I remember shortly after I got converted, and it was in 2004, it's probably 2006, around uh, a fire pit with a bunch of guys in a Bible study, and we were convinced the Lord was coming back any day. And when having to do with all these things going on in, in the Middle East and such. Theology was off, but the zeal for the return of the Lord was there. Well, the New Testament writers were very conscious that they were already living in the last days. Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, John speaks of the last hour, describing the entire period between the first coming of Jesus Christ and the second coming of Jesus Christ, also known as last days, last times. An apostasy, which is a falling away or a, a, a departure, or for when one stands aloof from the things of the Lord, we find in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, Old Testament, the wilderness wanderings, such a wide scale. An entire generation died without being allowed to enter the promised land. In Judges, we find one apostasy after another. In the New Testament, predictions of continual, recurring apostasy throughout the history of the church. And a final apostasy preceding the second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, an author by the name of Anthony Hokema in his book, The Bible in the Future, I recommend it to you, says that the fact that the sign is called a falling away or apostasy implies that this will be a rebellion against the Christian faith as it has been heard or professed. Listen to this. We may assume that those who fall away will be at least outwardly associated with the people of God. The apostasy will occur within the ranks of the members of the visible church. So it's not those out there. It is those within a context 
of a local church. In other words, those who went to church, those who were a part of a church, those who professed to be Christians, some who some of you know. I heard from a brother recently. He was letting me know about a friend of his who went to a particular church for years. Now he has denied uh, the, the sola scriptura, I believe it is, the authority of the Word of God, and is living in sin at this time, denying what he professed to believe for so long. And we also have the apostasy that is mentioned in 2 Thessalonians. We can go there. We can look at this. I will tease you with this, but we won't get into detail because everyone wants to know about the man of lawlessness, wants to know who's the Antichrist, what this will look like. But we just see this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'll read these verses and then we'll go to the book of Hebrews. Second Thessalonians verse 3 now, verse 1 now we request you brethren with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. These Thessalonians were struggling, saying, we heard that the Lord has come already, the day of the Lord has come, and, and they're, they're uh, distraught because of that. But Paul is correcting them here and saying, no, no, let no one in any way, verse 3, deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things? Do you not know, or do you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and will bring an end by the appearance of his coming. So we should be looking for the Lord, and we'll look what the Lord's going to do to him just by speaking. Verse 9, that is the one who is coming in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Then again, we see the responsibility. They did not receive the love of the truth in order to be saved. So in 2 Thessalonians, we have a definite article, the, the apostasy. The rest of the scriptures that we looked at thus far speak about apostasy in general, as Hebrews does as well. But here in 2 Thessalonians, a final climactic apostasy an intensification of a rebellion that has already begun, that is already at work. And this, in 2 Thessalonians, is associated with the man of lawlessness before the second coming of Christ. And sorry to disappoint us this morning, but we're not going to go there. 
But remember a helpful way of considering these things. The two-age model. This age and the age to come. This age, Christ's first coming. This age being uh, the last days. This days being the, the end of the ages. And then the age to come. Christ's second coming. The two ages. And apostasy and tribulation run parallel like train tracks in this age. We have tribulation as we go through life, do we not? And in our life now, people do uh, fall into apostasy and do leave the faith. We find both in this present age and an increase in both apostasy and tribulation we will see before Christ's second coming. John Owen, and he wrote a whole volume on, many volumes on many things, but on uh, Hebrews and on apostasy. And he said the gospel is made up of basically three main things. The mystery of its doctrine, which is what we are to believe. The holiness of its commands, which is how we are to live. And thirdly, the purity of its worship, how our professed faith and obedience is to, be, uh, is to be fleshed out. Neglect and forsake or corrupt these, that is the road to apostasy. It is, it is nearby. Corrupting the, the doctrine, corrupting uh, the holiness of its commands, and corrupting the purity of worship. Well, let's go to Hebrews. Chapter 6. Familiar passage, a misused passage. Hopefully I will not misuse this passage this morning. As I've studied this out, standing on heavy shoulders, John Owen, whole volume, and others, uh, Robert Martin, and others as well. But it's pretty clear when you study the, the whole book or study Scripture as a whole. Okay, Hebrews chapter 6. Let's just read verse 4 through 6. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Okay, so first, the context of the surrounding passages. Our first point is the warning introduced. The warning is introduced. And the context of, this, of the passage here, the surrounding text, is the why that Paul wrote this. We find in the book of Hebrews, well, excuse me, I don't know that Paul wrote this. So forgive me for that. I don't necessarily... Uh, Think that, well, actually, there's one theologian, I think it was James White, he made an interesting point. He said, because everyone wants to say who they think wrote it or whatnot, and he said, um, I, I believe, he said, so I may be misquoting, that Luke wrote it, but Paul spoke it. So it's Paul's words, but Luke wrote it down, something along those lines, but we don't know. So that was a slip there. If I say Paul, I don't mean that for the, for the book of Hebrews, because we just do not know who wrote it, but we know the author being God. So, 
So I wasn't trying to be dogmatic with there by any stretch. But we find in the book of Hebrews several exhortations and warnings. In chapter 2, we see a warning of drifting. Chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. So he's saying, we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. The danger of drifting. And then, in chapter 3, the danger of hardening one's heart. Chapter 3, verse 12 through 15. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. So the danger of drifting, the danger of hardening one's heart, and in chapter 4, verse 7, he again fixes a certain day, today saying that through David, after so long a time, just as he has said before, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Danger of drifting, danger of hardening one's heart. And then the writer of Hebrews begins to explain the perfect high priest, Jesus Christ, but then gives another warning in chapter 5. Look at this, chapter 5, verse 11. So chapter 5, he he begins to uh, encourage and to teach on the perfect high priest, Jesus Christ. And then verse 11, concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So we see the warnings coming, the, the encouragements to, to uh, heed sound doctrine and to hold fast. And in verse 12 through 14 of chapter 5, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the, to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Solid food is for the mature. They have their senses trained because of practice. One may say, I study solid food all the time. I study all this doctrine all the time. These weighty theological matters and can talk weighty theological things. But has it changed your character? Has it changed you as a man or as a woman? Has it made you more humble or more proud? And some think that they are solid, yet are like, more like infants, self-centered infants. Then the exhortation of pressing on is given in chapter 6, verse 1 through 3, which we will look at lastly. And Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 through 6 is one long sentence. Again, if you think of Ephesians and the one long sentence there, you say, ah, there's a long sentence here. Maybe it was Paul. Maybe not. But the main clause is found in in verse 6 that says, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Everything else 
in this long sentence is subordinate to this clause, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. The verb to renew, restore, means to restore back to its previous condition. And there are also several privileges that those described here were in some, some way benefits or are affected by. And then there are descriptions of apostasy in these verses as well. Look at the privileges. Once have been enlightened. And we're going to look at these one, in one, one, uh, one by one. Once have been enlightened, that's first. Secondly, have tasted of the heavenly gift. Thirdly, have become partakers of the Holy Spirit of God. Fourth, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. And then we see the description of, of apostasy and have fallen away. Secondly, impossible to renew them again to repentance. And thirdly, they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. So first, we saw the warnings introduced. Secondly, we see the light provided. The light provided. Very important point here. He shifts from first and second person usage, which has been consistent, to third person. He says, those, those who have once been enlightened. Now again, as we go to the New Testament, oftentimes we find the New Testament writers going back to the Old Testament, hearkening back, direct quote, or we could see uh, illustrations, allusions to the Old Testament. This may be referring back to the pillar of light that guided the Old Testament saints. Well, there's various types or levels of enlightenment that are offered as a way of explaining this verse, of what this verse means. But if we consider the whole counsel of God, the kind of illumination present here suggests a type of illumination that has some teeth to it. The person described here in this verse has a knowledge of biblical things, a knowledge of biblical truth, an understanding of who Jesus is, and an understanding of who Jesus claims to be, there's no confusion of who Jesus is. They at least understand it. The person professes to believe in these things and may zealously profess to have salvation. May zealously profess to being a Christian, at least at some point in their life. But there's a problem. There is a huge problem. As Robert Martin explains... In his commentary on Hebrews, he says this, Perhaps he even displays a change in his behavior, which persuades those who know him that he has been born again. Yet his present slothfulness and retrogression in spiritual things are alarming. The present slothfulness of one who says that they were a Christian or are a Christian and that they are going backwards in spiritual things, it causes alarm. And he says, as he continues, the, the truth of the gospel may have taken no root in his heart. So under the influence of trials or other considerations, he may revise his verdict about Christ and the gospel and cast the whole from him, returning to his old way of life and religion like a dog returning to his vomit. 
The type of person described here as we would think about, what does this look like in our context? A person that has spent time in church, perhaps years in church, perhaps raised in a church, baptized in a church. His or her thinking and behavior altered for a time. Being moral in some ways. But by falling away, it shows that they were never truly converted. And they proved to be an apostate. So the warnings are introduced. And then there's light provided. And they are having enlightened by the light. And then there is the food that is laid out. The food that is laid out. And they have tasted the heavenly gift. Again, this seems to be referring back to the manna in the Old Testament. God provided food. And the people ate of it. And here, in the book of Hebrews, they have tasted the heavenly gift. There's a big difference between tasting something and eating something. And what is this heavenly gift? Well, there's uh, five different things this could be. Probably more than five, but is this heavenly gift? It could be Jesus. It could be the Holy Spirit. It could be the grace of God. It could be the gift of righteousness. Or, which I landed on, it could be the gospel as a whole. They have tasted the heavenly gift of the gospel, which would go back to the illumination provided. They were affected. They tasted it. They experienced it. But they did not consume completely. Not digested. So a not complete eating or experience, to use that word once again. John Owen again provides some more nuggets for us. He says, The expression of tasting is metaphorical and signifies no more but to make a trial or experiment. For so we do by tasting naturally and properly. It does not therefore include eating, much less digesting and turning into nourishment of what is so tasted. This is what apostates will do with the gospel. They'll try it. They will taste it, but never consume it. May even chew on it for a while, a long while. But eventually, it's either got to be swallowed or spit out. An apostate is one who will spit it out. And this type of rejection is, is nothing new. Jesus had much to say on this. I'll just read this for us. No need to turn there. You're familiar with Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. And then he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father and who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, when they stand before Christ, Lord, Lord, did we not do this in your name and that in your name? Did we not prophesy in your name? And your name cast out demons? And your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, says the Lord, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And such will be for those who are apostates. 
as well. They're unwilling to count the cost. Apostates are in love with the world, willing to make a profession of Christ, but not to follow after Jesus Christ. And then, fourthly, we see a participation of experience, or participation experienced, and they have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Partaking, sharing by the way of participation. These have benefited, these have enjoyed, and have been witnesses of the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers, in others, but not by way of individually in themselves. Consider Judas Iscariot, spent years with Jesus Christ, day after day, close proximity to Christ, evangelized with Jesus, performed miracles ostensibly, or at least was there and went along with it the whole time, but was an apostate and betrayed Jesus Christ. And consider Demas, who started well. And we're not exactly sure how he finished, or I'm not exactly sure how he finished, but Paul says, Demas in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. For Judas, he was a partaker, but not regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God, not born again. That no one here would be a partaker without being born again. Participation experience, and then power noticed. Fifthly, the power noticed and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Here is this word tasted again. Tasted what? But tasted the good word of God. Benefited from the teaching of the word of God. The preaching of the gospel. And the powers of the age to come, the messianic age, the times of Jesus, which are characterized by powers, signs, and wonders, Believing in all of these things? So what does this mean? These who were partakers, these who have tasted, it means they were so close, but yet so far away. They were taught. They experienced things of the Lord. They benefited by being with God's people. And in the case of Judas and others, being in the presence of God in the flesh. Perhaps they're even partakers of the Lord's Supper, taking it in the wrong way. Perhaps even baptized. Perhaps even joining the local church. Serving in various capacities. Benefiting from other believers. Going to the summer camps. Going to VBS. Serving in ministry, but yet not even knowing Christ. So close, but yet so far away. They notice the power, but then we find that apostasy was committed. Sixthly, apostasy committed. Again, the case of those who have been enlightened 
and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, enlightened, tasted, been made partakers and have tasted the good word of the powers of the age to come, but then have fallen away, committed apostasy. What does this mean? Well, what does it not mean? What does it not mean? It does not mean that a Christian can lose their salvation. That is not taught in the Word of God. The Word of God teaches the perseverance of the saints. The Word of God teaches that we will persevere because of what God has done in us. Christ did not die for His people so that they could jump out of His hands so that they could be lost again. No, He died for His people. He will see us through. It does not mean when one falls into a particular sin, even a grievous sin as a Christian, that is not apostasy. The Scripture is clear that Christians can fall and do fall into many sins. And the Scripture is clear that when Christians do sin or fall into sin, they will confess their sin. They will repent of their sin. And they will receive forgiveness once again. 1 John chapter 1 and chapter 2. I'm just going to go there for the encouragement of anyone in here who may be backslidden this morning, who is a Christian. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate, though, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, for the Christian. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for those of the whole world, for those who will come to him in faith and repentance. The hope for the Christian. This falling away spoken about in Hebrews chapter 6 is not a season. It is not a true Christian who backslides. Which a backsliding Christian is a true and real thing. Does that mean we say, well, great, now that it's true and real, I can go slide back. No, that would not be the heart we would have, obviously. But we see that there is a difference. The one who falls away, as described here, is renouncing the gospel of Jesus Christ. They understand the gospel. They profess and believe in Jesus Christ. They profess that. But now they are renouncing him. And they are walking away. We see this all the time in evangelism. People who are very hostile now to the gospel and hostile to the things of the Lord. And if you can get in a conversation somewhat with them, they will go back to, they used to go to church. And a lot of times they were truly hurt in a church. Not offended by what someone said. Not offended by the carpet color or some meaningless thing that people say and they leave a church for or just finding an excuse, but serious sins against them. Doesn't excuse their apostasy. 
doesn't excuse where they're at, but at least it gives you some empathy for them to where you can pray for them. How can an apostate renounce Christ? How could they walk away because they never truly were converted? The only reason any one of us in here believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ is because He sovereignly saved us. There was nothing in us at all that says, oh, it was all me, it was all God. Left to ourselves, we would be nothing. And this warning goes back to Hebrews chapter 4 again, 1 and 2. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them. Why would the word heard not profit someone? Because it was not united by faith in those who heard. Those that fell in the wilderness, they heard the good news, but did not respond to it. So we find apostasy committed. Those who have fallen away. And then, seventhly, the impossibility pronounced. The impossibility pronounced. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Those are some strong words there. Crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Present tense verb, ongoing, crucify. Simply to reject Christ after having come to the knowledge of the gospel. Richard Phillips says it this way, To repudiate Christ is, in effect, to take up hammer and nails and beat them into his hands and feet. To make common cause with those who crucified him. To mock him like the soldiers who laughed and sneered and said, He saves others, why can he not save himself? One who is an apostate is described as thus. Present tense and heart attitude of such an individual. And impossible for one to return to Christ. They will not return to Jesus because of the hardening effect of their apostasy. So we ask the question, well, can people who are rejecting Jesus Christ be saved? Of course, because we were all rejecting Jesus Christ before we were saved. It is the sovereign power of God in salvation. Remember the disciples asked when Jesus was speaking about the rich man, it's difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And then in in 1926, the disciples said, well, who then can be saved? Jesus says, with people this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And then again, that's a verse not to take out of context, brothers and sisters, please. With an apostate, however, as the ESV puts it, 
it is impossible to restore again those who fall away. Why not? God will not permit it. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, if it is possible for anyone, speaking of a Christian, anyone to fall away, it means that God made a mistake when he predestined such people to their glory. So a Christian will not fall away ultimately, will not commit apostasy. The question is then, what do we do to avoid being apostate or to avoid being a backslider? Well, chapter 6, verse 1 and 2 tells us. But true believers in here this morning, let me encourage you once again that you will not ultimately fall away. You cannot lose your salvation if indeed it is true. You absolutely cannot because it is of God. And 1 Peter chapter 1, 3 through 5, we'll just read it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. It is reserved in heaven for you. So you got to wrestle with this verse and wrangle with it and change it. If you say, oh, a Christian can lose their salvation. And that's just one. Because we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. One more I'll read for us. Gospel of John. No need to turn there. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. It's very clear. And Peter is a great example and encouragement for us as believers. Peter denied Christ three times, yet Christ restored him. Christ prayed for him. Christ prayed for him. Christ protected him. And Christ preserved him. Jesus Christ died for the elect, for his people, for us. And he will indeed see us home. There's action required, though. Eighth point. Action is required. Press on to maturity. Press on to maturity. Chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and resurrection of the dead in eternal judgment. 
So the point here is not that we cast away and abandon these truths. Of course not. But they are a foundation that we build on as we press on into maturity. The teachings of Christ, we continue on. Repentance from dead dead works and faith toward God. True repentance always leads to saving faith. And saving faith is evidence of true repentance. Instruction about washings. Various theologians, various uh, descriptions of what this is. Could be baptism. Laying on of hands for the sick or for ordination. The resurrection of the dead. All will face God. Eternal judgment. All we stand before God in eternity. And will go to either heaven or hell. If you go to a cemetery and you look at the headstones and you look at them, they represent eternity, heaven or hell. Each gravestone is somebody who was there at one point in time and now is in eternity. We press on to maturity. Grow up in Christ. Grow up in the Lord. Immaturity is obvious. Pressing on to maturity takes time, takes effort, takes prayer, takes discipline, and takes devotion. We're either going to be like a a stream that is flowing or a pond that is stagnant. Which one represents you this morning, Christian? And this we will do if God permits. We will press on to maturity if God permits. We are completely responsible to press on. But we are completely helpless to do so without God's grace, providence, and His help. Maybe some of you in here this morning are wondering if you are an apostate. Maybe some of you are really in a state of a backslidden period of time. And you just cannot find your way out. But today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Today is the day to turn to Jesus Christ. Or to turn back to Him as you cast off that sin that is hindering your walk. Christian, you are a new creature created in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. God will not lose any of His own. He will not allow you to fall away, ultimately. He will discipline you. He will chasten you back into the fold. He is all-powerful. He is the author and perfecter of our salvation. He will complete His work He began in us. And He has indeed turned our mourning into dancing. And to those without Christ this morning, you sit here condemned before a holy God. You are a hell-deserving sinner in need of a Savior. You are a Christ-rejecter and have broken His holy law, summarized in the Ten Commandments. The one true God is not first in your life. The penalty of your sin is death. After you die, you will stand before Jesus Christ. He is your judge. And there will be no second chances. There will be no appeals. There will be no pardons. 
The Bible says to fear Him who is able to cast you both body and soul in hell. If you die without Christ, you will suffer for eternity. Yet today is the day of salvation. For all under the sound of my voice. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. And He rose again on the third day and conquered death itself. God poured out His holy wrath on His Son on that cross as Christ endured that wrath for hell-deserving sinners. And since God crushed His only Son, do you really think He's going to let any of us off the hook? Repent and believe the gospel this day. We find for us in the scriptures the warnings introduced, the light provided, the food that was laid out, the participation experienced, the power noticed, but then the apostasy that was committed and the impossibility pronounced. And for all of us to avoid being backslidden, to avoid apostasy, Action is required. Keep our hand to the plow and continue on following Jesus Christ by His grace and for His glory. Let us pray. Father, Your Word is clear to us we have a better understanding, even minimally more today, of what we are to expect to see. Expect to see in the lives of individuals who once professed Christ, who once maybe were part of a church, served in whatever capacities, but now are, have turned their back on, on Jesus Christ and are described as an apostate. But God, we don't know the hearts. As is often said, we can see fruit, we can hear words that people say. God, give us wisdom on how to interact with those who, are, who have left the fold, as it were, and say that they want nothing to do or don't believe and Lord, for those in here who may be backslidden this morning, who are truly, truly a Christian and are just in a spot, Lord, where they, they need you to reach down to them and just grab them out of it, Lord. Help them this day. Lord, we pray that any in here who do not know you would turn to Christ and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, return from their sin. And turn to you, in Jesus' name, amen.